Welcome to Ageless by Rescue. This podcast is devoted to exploring the science of rejuvenation, uncovering the most trusted experts, the must-have products, innovations, and technology in the field of vitality, aesthetics, new beauty, and cosmetic enhancement. Dr. Naveen Somia joined me ahead of the Non-Surgical Symposium 2023 on the Gold Coast, Australia. Based in Sydney, Dr. Somia is a highly regarded specialist plastic surgeon and as a past president of the Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, he has been at the forefront of the industry for nearly two decades. Dr. Somia's commitment to both his patients' aesthetic goals and his role as an educational leader in the field has made him a trusted authority. He's certainly someone I turn to when I need to decipher some serious science. He has served as the scientific convener for the ASAP's non-surgical symposium meeting for the past five years. Solidifying his expertise and dedication, he is an advocate for patient-focused and safe frameworks to approach facial aesthetics. In this important episode, we dive into the changes in law that came into effect July 1 in the realm of cosmetic surgery and aesthetic enhancement. Dr. Somia sheds light on the new guidelines introduced by APRA, which aim to protect consumers and ensure informed decision-making when it comes to choosing practitioners and treatment plans. These updates encompass marketing, psychological assessment, and procedural guidelines, and are part of a comprehensive cosmetic surgery reform package that raises standards and imposes stricter advertising requirements. We also explore the exciting global trend of regenerative superclinics, a revolutionary concept that brings together experts from various disciplines to address longevity, aesthetics, and cosmetic enhancement all under the one roof. Dr. Somia provides valuable insights into this emerging trend and its potential to shape the future of aesthetic medicine. I invite you to unlock the secrets of longevity, wellness, and new beauty with Dr. Naveen Somia exclusively on the Ageless by Rescue podcast. Dr. Naveen, I'm so delighted to have you on the show. We This has been a long time in the making for us, huh? That, that's right, Baha. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure well, to be on your show. Yeah, I, I always love listening to you. I, I think, you know, for those of you who don't know, not only are you a, an esteemed plastic surgeon in Australia, but you were also the former president of the Australian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons. And now you are the scientific convener of the non-surgical symposium. Is that correct? That's correct. So tell me, what does the uh, scientific convener, I, I know it's pretty much you run the whole thing, but specifically, what is this role and why did you decide to put together a consulting committee uh, for this year's non-surgical symposium? That's a very good uh, question because we have been uh, running the non-surgical symposium as a not-for-profit meeting focused primarily on evidence-based scientific research in the non-surgical space for the last uh, many years. And I have been convening this meeting for the last uh, four years now. Um, and all of us are very good at what we do, uh, but over time we tend to know less and less of the th stuff that we do. So I thought to have a perspective of having 
different viewpoints, different perspectives across the industry, which is predominantly um, uh, the participants in the industry include all uh, healthcare professionals, starting from plastic surgeons, other surgeons, specialist dermatologists, doctors who do cosmetic injecting, nurse practitioners, enrolled nurses, registered nurses, and dermal therapists. We said, why don't we get a viewpoint from each one of them? So we have one person representing each sector on the uh, advisory committee. Uh, who can then advise me on uh, uh, things that are important as how they see the industry in, which ultimately makes for a better learning experience for everyone who comes to the event. So we're very proud of the fact that uh, this is the first time we had a scientific advisory committee, and uh, we have put together a very, very good program. And unlike the last few years where the focus was on um, being a better injector and trying to do the best uh, um, uh, for your patient this year we have all of that plus we've got systems in place to put all that collective knowledge together so that if you can go to your clinic on monday morning and you want to put into practice these things there is a structured framework because systems make sure that you do not miss anything systems make sure that you use what we call as the good practice or best practice in the industry based on evidence-based and current science I'm so impressed by that. I'm impressed by that for two reasons, and I'll tell you why. As a consumer, as the end consumer of these services, it is so reassuring to know that a body such as this and someone with your esteemed credentials has acknowledged that it is in the coming together of multiple experts and multiple areas of expertise that the patient is going to get the best care and the clinician is going to deliver the most cutting edge, scientifically validated, evidence-based treatment protocol to the patient. And to me, that that's, that's very reassuring because it sounds like everyone has put their ego aside and instead of operating in silos where, you know, the surgeon thinks they know it best, the aesthetic doctor thinks they know it best, the uh regenerative medicine expert thinks they know it best. You've collected everyone together in a scientific advisory board and you will be sharing resources. And as you said, so importantly, systems that will allow the protocols to be delivered in a safe, structured, measurable, efficient manner to the end consumer. So for that, on behalf of all of us, all the consumers that are going to be the recipient of these benefits, I thank you. Um, I really want to have a conversation with you because something very exciting and very different is about to happen on July 1, and it's going to affect the aesthetic and the surgical industry very much, and consumers are going to be the beneficiaries of these changes. I would love for you to share, in layman's terms, what's happening on July 1 and why it's important. Uh, thank you. But I think uh, July 1 is um, not very far away. And um, APRA, which is the Australian Health Practitioners Regulatory Authority, um, have come up with guidelines in that define how a regulated health service like cosmetic surgery or cosmetic uh, procedures should be performed um, in the context of a clinical setting. So there's a whole heap of rules that govern cosmetic surgery, starting from the uh, care given to the patient uh, by the practitioner, uh, and also uh, very stringent uh, do's and don'ts about advertising. The same 
things apply to cosmetic procedures that are non-surgical procedures, but of a, a lesser intensity, but nevertheless still there. Now, this is all designed to make the industry um, be better regulated so that the consumer can uh, make a choice with confidence that the person is uh, going to give the consumer the best possible outcome. And these are, again, talking back into systems and safeguards. These are regulatory safeguards built around the delivery of cosmetic surgical care and cosmetic procedural care to patients where you cannot mislead based on advertising. Because we all know that um, advertising plays a big role in um, anything that we buy and sell nowadays and uh, cosmetic surgery and cosmetic and procedures. As media, we're heavily regulated too. I mean, we... Yeah. There are so many um, things that we can and can't say and we can and can't endorse. And we have to be, thank God, completely transparent now when we've been on the receiving end of a gift or a free treatment or uh, we've been paid to be a spokesperson for a treatment, a procedure, a product. And I think that that has been a massive uh, benefit to the end reader, the consumer, the listener. Um but uh, this is going one step further because it's now placing that same responsibility on the practitioners. That, that's correct. So what, what's happening is um, um, there are guidelines at every aspect of a patient journey, starting from how they interact with your advertising, how they, um, what can you say, what can't you say, what words you can use. And it's all about trying to remain as scientific as possible and as evidence-based as possible. To give an example, um, colloquial terms uh, cannot be used in isolation. They have to be used as medical terms. For example, uh, you can no longer say the word tummy tuck, if I can use that term. You have to combine that with the word abdominoplasty, which is the medical term for the procedure. Basically trying to um, showcase that this is serious surgery. Not, I'm so not to pleased be... you said this because I had an abdominoplasty a year and a half ago, and I have never in my life referred to it as a tummy tuck. Yeah. And my goodness, it is a serious procedure. And the recovery is something I have never experienced before. The procedure itself is a serious medical scientific procedure. It was performed by a qualified plastic surgeon. I it was big. It was heavy duty. Yeah. And I'm so pleased that it's not being called a tummy tuck because that is the last thing that it is. That's that's right. And we, we, you probably heard about the marketing terms such as lunchtime lipo and lunchtime facelift yes. uh, in, in some ways to trivialize the impact of the recovery so that you can come and go back to work after lunch. There's nothing, there's nothing like it. And uh, all everyone who's gone through a surgical procedure, uh, just just as you um, um, referenced uh, your experience, uh, will tell it is not as um, what it's made out in the media. So I think we all of us as responsible practitioners have an obligation to um, keep it real, so to speak. And uh, yes, these are important uh, considerations for the patient because if the patient feels that this is beyond what they can cope with downtime, uh, organizing time off work, so on and so forth, then they can make the choice not to have the procedure as opposed to thinking this is just an overnight stay, day surgery case, very trivial, trivialize the whole experience. And suddenly post-surgery, you're hit with a, um, an experience that you never bargained for. So I think th these are all things that are um, uh, will tighten up uh, 
the advertising regulation of the industry to make patients' decision-making a bit more um, grounded, so to speak, and uh, better. The other thing is uh, you have to now have for cosmetic surgery a referral from a GP doctor, otherwise you cannot have it. And uh, you also need to have a mandatory testing for a what is called a psychological vulnerability because uh, um, a lot of patients, um, it is proposed that there's a significant percentage of body dysmorphic disorders uh, in the community and, um, and these patients are vulnerable. And as a consequence, we need to um, um, see if they need other forms of help, not just a surgical intervention. And in the cosmetic surgical non-surgical space as well that those regulations are coming in dr naveen this is the part that has had a lot of conversation the the psychological assessment so firstly i am super happy on behalf of consumers everywhere that apra are imposing these regulations when it comes to the consultation period the as you said keeping it real so that the patient has the opportunity to make an informed decision Certainly, I, I and I'm grateful that this happened to me because when I was having assessment for my surgery, my surgeon uh, made it very clear that recovery was going to be uh, more than a couple of days off. So I made arrangements. I had someone pick me up from hospital. I had someone stay with me for the first two weeks coming out of hospital because they I, I couldn't... I couldn't even lie down to sleep, much less get up yeah. and walk around or Absolutely. take care of my child or look after our pet. So because my surgeon had been so transparent with me, I had the opportunity to prepare and therefore I didn't have the pitfalls of rupturing um, the work that he'd done or plunging into a dark depression from the pain, from the um, the lack of mobility. It, it was really, really his care and I had I think six follow-up consults after the surgery which again uh was a lot but absolutely necessary each consult was necessary but I didn't have the psychological assessment and I know that this is a new conversation piece there's been a huge amount of chatter of do we need psychological assessment for the non-surgical procedures but let's talk first about the surgical procedures because you are a plastic surgeon and I would like to know how this might work as part of a consultation and or rather how you will be offering it in your practice. Look I think um, that I I do offer it in the practice uh, currently um, so I have been doing that for the last uh, uh, five and a half years and um, the current guidelines specify that uh, you have to administer the uh, psych psychological testing at the consultation and based on that, uh, whether it goes um, for additional screening or no additional screening will be determined by the test. Now, I think uh, how we're going to do that is to uh, inform the patient that as of 1st of July, you're going to have a mandatory uh, testing to uh, look for anything that is hidden, uh, covert, that you're not obviously uh, figured out. And if the event turn, the test turns out to be um, uh, positive, uh, in, in indicating that you need to have additional treatment or non-surgical assessment and so on and so forth, then that that will be clearly uh, conveyed to the patient before they take the test because that's, that's kind of very very important in my opinion to tell the patient the implications of turning positive or turning negative, right? 
and um, they come come to an expect come with an expectation that I'm going to have a surgical procedure, and then suddenly you're telling them to go and have a mental health assessment. That's not a very aligned uh, uh, discussion. So it's something that they will be told like the mandatory requirements as of first of July are a GP referral to see a uh, surgeon for cosmetic surgery and a um, in-house um, psychological testing uh, if the results turn out to be positive and you're seen as uh, someone who may not be suitable, you need to have additional testing and uh, um, counseling by a qualified psychologist uh, to see how best we can optimize your care for you. There seems to be one of the things that that's the pushback on this new um, mandatory rule is that the psychotherapy fraternity is stretched um, and under-resourced post-pandemic already for other psychological uh, treatment plans. And so adding this to the mix is going to clog up the system for something that uh, many people are saying, well, this is a vanity issue. The other one might be a life-threatening issue. How do you think there's going to be this balance of, A, finding enough psychologists who are able to administer the care that you were talking about if the patient is deemed to be in a high risk category and how do you propose that the surgeons and the medical fraternity who are administering these procedures whether they're surgical or non-surgical are going to be held accountable to make sure that this process is followed if it does mean that you know potentially a a lucrative procedure has to be put on the back bench? Look, I think it's, um, there's two aspects to this one. So I don't think um, um, the whole uh, impact of this regulation has been uh, quote-unquote modelled to see uh, who are the providers, uh, city-based, state-based, and who is trained, who is qualified. So I think it is uh, um, that hasn't been um, uh, modeled on appropriate lines. Uh, but having said that, the uh, psychological society, I'm sure, will will now suddenly see that there is a demand for um, services and they will, uh, I'm sure, put together a panel of people who can uh, help out patients in each uh, state. Now, how will this impact um, the non-surgical industry is, um, sorry, how, in the surgical industry, you have no choice. You have to administer the test. It becomes a part of your medical records. It has to be documented, and uh, then you take it from there. And uh, there are a couple of tests in the um, um, available for us, and there is one called the patient assessment test that was uh, many years in the making by the Australian Australasian Foundation for Plastic Surgery in collaboration with a professor of uh, uh, body image from the UK. And uh, that test is now um, readily available. And uh, plastic is that the gold have... standard for testing at the moment? We, we don't know which is the gold standard because no one has told us what is the gold standard. But uh, there are, from from what I know of, there are four um, four testing methodologies available uh, currently, but in the next two to three weeks, we'll know if any more are coming on the market. Um, so this one is called the patient assessment tool, and uh, you can go through a uh, small uh, training program to uh, familiarize yourself with how to test and then how to interpret those results and uh, take it from there. But I think um, come 1st of July, there'll be a few teething issues. I can assure you that. Yes, I'm going to ask you a question um, which relates to this. And again, from your experience and perspective, I'd love to know. Um, A growing number of um, patients, 
in the surgical space are teens, uh, older teens. So, uh, and I believe it's legal um, after 16, correct, to have uh, rhinoplasty, breast augmentation, liposuction. There's there's a whole lot of things you can have if you have parental consent. Is that correct? That that's how I understand. But I think the the, the stricter regulations for um, um, teenagers having uh, uh, cosmetic surgery in terms of uh, assessing their psychological vulnerability, you need to have a GP to uh, vet that. There's uh, significantly longer uh, waiting periods in uh, or sort of quote unquote cooling off periods, and there's a whole heap of. Uh, safeguards built into the system. So uh, the, one of the common things that um, uh, patients uh, uh, seek is a procedure called breast reduction, which can impact their life, lifestyle, and the quality of life at a very young age. So these are operations that can be seen as cosmetic, but at the same time, they impact uh, uh, adolescents or teenagers. So it's in this case where a uh, GP can help uh, the patient uh, access the appropriate practitioner, the treatment, and then as long as there are, there are guidelines in place to make sure that delivery of care is not just you decide I want to have a procedure and then you're going to have it done. Uh, but for other things, uh, for example, like rhinoplasty, if there's a medical indication that could well form into uh, fall into the pathway, but things such as liposuction in teenage unless is a medical reason for it, uh, I think it's going to be harder because it's uh, it will be seen as a pure cosmetic procedure. And I'm sure that there's going to be more, stri more stricter guidelines because you'll have to get the clearance from a um, psychologist slash psychiatrist as well as uh, a GP to uh, support you in the journey. And I find that, you know, I guess that's reassuring. Um, and in total transparency. I had my first cosmetic surgery when I was 17. I was 17 years old. I wanted rhinoplasty. I booked in. I didn't need a GP referral. I went to a plastic surgeon in Canberra uh, at John James Hospital when I was 17 years old and I had my first rhinoplasty. It was not for a medical reason. My second rhinoplasty was for a medical reason because I had my first one too early yeah. And my, you know, skull hadn't grown and I needed to have my septum straightened out when I was 25. But so I, I guess I'm reflecting on personal experience and also as a mother of a 12-year-old who may not be getting marketed to by advertising yeah. to be interested in cosmetic surgery, but she's certainly getting marketed to. Because when you see, you know, pop stars and actors and actresses who have undergone a almost like a a complete um, makeover, makeover, for lack yeah. of a better word, exactly. You know, when you see some of the most famous, well-paid models in the world who literally did not, were not born this way and achieved their look through surgery, it's hard as a mother to then say, look, oh, you can't do that. Don't do it. it it's terrible for you. So as a mother, I'm excited that, the medical fraternity are going to close ranks and they're going to say, the GP is going to say, no, I'm not going to give that referral. The surgeon is going to say, let's have a look at the psychological framework before I proceed with this procedure and potentially won't proceed with the procedure. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you. I think um, social media, as we all know, um, is is a part of a life. And, um, and I think with regards to 
um, body enhancements, uh, cosmetic surgery, cosmetic uh, non-surgical procedures, it's quite, quite rampant. And little by little, and if we can use the word creep, uh, the um, advertising influence just creeps on you. So what was normal a year ago uh, has been uh, incrementally increased. So the new normal is slightly different. Yes, it is aspirational because that's how it's been marketed to you. And all of a sudden, what you thought normal at the age of 11 is not normal at the age of 13 and so on and so forth. So all of a sudden, um, the ground realities are shifting very, very fast. And uh, people, uh, I mean, if you follow Instagram, you'll know that people post their own experiences of photographs of uh, um, having had surgery before and after, which is very knowledgeable. But at the same time, how does a 12-year-old in interpret that one? How does a 15-year-old Absolutely. Or how does a 12-year-old interpret, you know, one day Ariana Grande looked like this and the next day she looked like that? Or Bella Hadid was born looking like this and now she's yep. the most highest paid model because yep. of the surgery that yep. she had. You know, when I was younger, the the most exciting transformation was the width of your eyebrows. So the the fashion of eyebrows would change. You know, you'd have super thin eyebrows or thick, beautiful eyebrows, and then you'd pay the price for it for the next thirty years because you overplucked your eyebrows. That's right. That that you can live with, but now Lily is living in a world where, thank God, she doesn't want this. But you know, maybe she's dreaming of a Brazilian butt lift. You. That's that's different to having your eyebrows overplucked. That that really is something that is going to impact her health, her mental health, her well-being for the rest of her life. So yeah. you're right. The social media impact is so fast. The creep has happened gradually, but and it's constantly changing. But that's it's right. no longer, you know, if you're blonde or brunette, a bob or a shag, thick eyebrows or thin eyebrows. It's like boobs or flat chested, straight nose or natural nose, you know, lips, no lips, bum, no bum. It's a lot. It's a lot to navigate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think everyone tends to um, have the, um, um, the have a feature that is uh, present in a celebrity. So somebody will have an eyebrow of person X and someone will have, wish to have a cheek like person Y. So now they know that all those things have physically possible you know what I mean so it's like um so you can see how this whole thing it's like a um, shopping list it's like yeah. oh can I play can I have you know so and so's nose exactly yeah. exactly yeah. and it's possible it is actually possible absolutely Dr Naveen I would like to pivot the conversation slightly and we'll come back to the new rules later but I'm excited to talk to you similar to the advisory board that you've put together the scientific advisory panel you've put together for the non-surgical symposium, which I'm so delighted that I am attending this year uh, and I can't wait to be part of it and to share everything that I learned as a result of it with my audience. But you're doing something similar in your practice in terms of offering the full gamut of regenerative care and medicine and services and this is something that you believe is going to be the new normal over the next 10 to 15 years. Absolutely. So I think if you look at, um, um, let's take, for example, the uh, Scientific Advisory Committee uh, as, as a benchmark um, and the multiple disciplines and professions involved in non-surgical aesthetics, 
Um, so every single one is a committed professional who wants nothing but the best for the patient. But all of us are working in our own little silos and our knowledge base is very focused on what we know and what we know well and do well, right? But uh, but there is... And a in a way, that's good because respect. I want to know that Dr. Naveen Samia is going to every single surgical conference, symposium. He knows surgery inside out. That makes me happy that you make time to keep learning, growing, yeah. being better yeah. at that craft. But there is so much of knowledge out here. It's an explosion of uh, new things coming in all these disciplines that it is almost impossible for one person to be uh, on top of it. So that is why coming to a meeting like the non-surgical will just open up your eyes to say, okay, fine, you can do this and you can do that and you can do that. So this year in particular, um, we have a panel on what we call as care of the skin because your cutaneous aging is an essential part of aging, especially if you live in um, sun range country like Australia, your skin aging is an essential part of aging. So we have a system in place that we're going to showcase at the NSS how to take a patient through a skin consultation in terms of adding value to your patient care. So if I practice surgery, skin care or looking after the skin of the patient either before or after surgery is an essential part of the overall um, uh, experience that the patient has, which does make a positive impact on the result and also helps to maintain the result both in the short, medium, and the long term in a manner that previously was not possible because Absolutely. now you have uh, cutting-edge scientific evidence to suggest that this is possible, this is doable, this is what you need to do. That so skincare can do it. That skincare yeah. is that efficacious. And I always say this, I say cosmeceutical skincare is really your first line of defense. Yeah. And you can, it's DIY, you can do it at home as long as you get the right advice and the right products and uh, you mix and match and keep changing your strategy every five years because your needs are different. And same, same thing. So what, what we're trying to say is a collaborative approach to patient care is essential in this aesthetic industry. So if I can perform surgery, I'm not very good at looking after your skin. I can advise you on basic key points, but then there are professionals who are dedicated to looking after your skin. And that's kind of why you need to um, have a dedicated professional look after you because that, that's when you get the best of everything. And um, similarly, if you have somebody who's a um, specialist dermatologist look after you, um, and there are certain things that a specialist dermatologist can look after you better than what I can look after you. And so there's a big avenue and a growing trend to collaborative care to improve the outcomes for your patient. And I think that's kind of what will be um, showcased at the NSS, that working together is an essential part of how you not only stay relevant, but you continue to provide the best for your patient. Otherwise, your offerings can become stale very quickly. Well, I also like it from a consumer benefit point of view in that, you know, if I come to your clinic, I'm being treated as a whole and not uh, as a, you know, I'll just polish up this, but we'll leave, we'll ignore this cause uh, area. Yeah. And for me, one of the, the key things in my kind of regenerative journey was the hormonal piece and the integrative and medicine. regenerative medicine conversation. So my aesthetics physician, Dr. Joseph Hakeek, he said to me, before I keep buffing and puffing and filling and lasering, which we've been doing, 
you are now at a stage where you need hormonal intervention and I don't do that. So I'm going to refer you to a doctor who is actually going to attend to that because the sagging that you're now experiencing is, is no longer just normal age. It's led by hormonal changes. And my work will only be a patch job if we don't attend to the root cause. So off I went to see Dr. Nasser for my hormonal needs. And that was revolutionary for me. It was just a great aha moment. And then for similarly for device-based or threads, that wasn't his specialty. So he referred me to another uh, doctor within his practice who administered the uh, the energy uh, devices or the threads, which I've had with Dr. Adina within his practice. So I, I do love that. I, I do love that I was cared for so much that, you know, I was moved around and it was through that network that I got the referral for my surgeon who performed the abdominoplasty and my surgeon knew the other doctors that were in my networks. And, and so I felt safe, but I thought to myself at the time, wouldn't it be great if everyone was together? I didn't yeah. have to go to five different clinics to do this. So you're right. I think I think expertise sometimes is um, 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 it's hard to maintain that level of expertise in in one one place for obvious reasons. But uh, I think shared care is probably in in a way a very good model of of care. And we we're beginning to see this uh, uh, coming through um, fast and furious, as we say. And I think the future is also going to be um, very um, um, groundbreaking as we see more technology, more research coming into what we call as cellular aging and metabolic health. So uh, you spoke about hormonal health. Hormonal health is one way of influencing your overall metabolic health. But uh, people talk about lifestyle medicine and how lifestyle impacts your overall health. And uh, that's that's a broad discipline called metabolic health. And there's plenty of evidence to say that um, and how you look after your metabolic health, starting from your gut health and your overall uh, sleep health and your mental health. So everything impacts um, uh, one another. And I happened to read an article recently that uh, uh, suggested that your muscle is not just a structural um, organ for strength and mobility. It is an endocrine organ. And every time you activate your muscle. Your muscle is an endocrine organ. Wow. Correct. Never and every, every, that's right. It's, it's a new paper that I read, uh, published last year. And um, it said that it you, every time you activate your muscle, you produce a whole heap of beneficial hormones and growth factors that are very essential that tick off A, B, C, and D. Right? And similar way, your sleep also impacts the way your gut health uh, impacts the next day morning. So it's very, uh, all of these, as we have said before, I have developed in independent silos, but I think yes. in the next next five to 10 years time, there will be a merging of all these. And all, all of a sudden, you're now going to see somebody who's going to be practicing uh, quote unquote integrated integrative medicine, where you may go in to see somebody for uh, let's say a cosmetic concern, and the person might say, "Look, have you thought about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and taking you back to a cellular level of aging and mitochondrial aging is a big thing now, and people are understanding how mitochondria ages influences your entire aging, how your gut health influences your skin. So these are all things that are um, just around the corner and uh, just waiting to be integrated. So I think uh, there's plenty of research. Uh, it's only a matter of time before they become the new norm. 
Definitely. And I, I often talk about, you know, uh, functional testing being the cornerstone of uh, your, your being ageless is unless you know your internal dashboard, uh, whatever you do, if you're not, if you don't know where you started and, and measure how you're going, you're just throwing money at it, or you're just throwing treatments at it, but you're not fine tuning it to be that personalized treatment model. And exactly as you said, part of functional uh, medicine is understanding your gut health and your gut microbiome, understanding your metabolic health, um, understanding your um, mind health and um, beyond, you know, mindfulness, you know, your uh, neuro um, wellness, your agility, yeah. your memory, and the prevention of dementia and other yeah. age-related uh, diseases is going to be part of the overall conversation you might actually have with your plastic surgeon. So yeah. it's it's one thing to go and have a facelift, um, but you also want to make sure that everything else works with it, that your heart health is good, that your mental cognition is good. So, you know, the front matches the internals. Absolutely, because I think if you look at a lot of cosmetic uh, surgery and cosmetic intervention um, um, uh, for patients, patients who come to us and to uh, cosmetic procedural for non-surgical interventions. These are patients who are well, who want to remain well, and they're prepared to commit and prepared to invest in that journey. So I think it's only a matter of time before that group of people start exploring other options as to what is new, because now, as you said, the good thing about uh, social media is that you don't have to go looking for answers because answers get fed to you based on something that you liked and the algorithm that keeps changing. So if you have clicked on a metabolic health post of somebody else, next thing you know is you'll be fed a lot of metabolic health issues. If you have clicked on a gut health post, you get fed gut health. I follow an academic uh, website about uh, uh, scientific papers. So all you have, because I have follow certain key areas of uh, cosmetic surgery. Now that algorithm feeds me papers. Oh, you read this. So you may be interested in this one. So I not, don't, don't no longer have to go looking for papers to read because it get fed, it's get fed to me based on my interests, which then cements my authority in that field because I, instead of reading one paper a month, I read about four papers a month. <laughs> so that, that's how it's going to work. And I think everyone gets uh, will become knowledgeable and uh, understand this much better than what we are, uh, what we know in 2023. So going back to the new rules that are coming into place in July 1, what are some of the advertising changes that will happen with, I mean, because at the moment there are some quite heavy restrictions about advertising surrounding aesthetic work um, and surgery, but what will doctors be able to say? What what will we, will we see as consumers? Well, look, I think the, the, first, um, the first thing is you're no, no longer meant to use testimonials of any kind. Um, and that's always been the rule, but I think it's going to be enforced. And the definition of what is the testimonial is now um, stretched uh, beyond what is the traditional testimonial going to be. So you are not allowed to interact with social media posts anymore. You can't comment. You can't thank. You can't like. You can't, if a patient gives you a thank you card, you can't take a photograph and post it on your social media account. 
Um, so yeah. it, it's it's getting getting it is very very stringent. If you put, if you put a before and after photograph, they have to be very clinical. They have to be identical, and obviously you can't uh, um, uh, breach patient privacy. Uh, that's one thing. And you cannot have single photos. You can't have stock photos of uh, uh, lifestyle. You can't have person lying on a beach. You can't have patient person lying on a um, sunbed. You can't have patient riding a horse. Those are all seen as subconscious enablers of an unrealistic expectation. Wow. So all of those perfectly airbrushed photos of a 16-year-old woman that's passing off as, you know, a 45-year-old woman, no more. No more. So that that flows to the aesthetics and the surgical industry. Is this for both both sides or are you talking just about surgical at the moment? It's it's definitely for surgical, uh, but um, the non-surgical space is a regulated industry. It's a regulated health service, right? Um, so uh, th there's a bit of gray area there. So no, the, the clarity is is not that evident at this stage, but in the next two to three weeks, summit, because it, it will become very clear because people are asking questions. So for example, if I, in my clinic, offer a... Um, non-surgical procedure. I can't have a dichotomy of advertising. I can't have um, follow the rules with surgery and I can do what I want with non-surgical because it is now seen as a conduit to surgery. Ah, right. So it's a okay. feeder system. Feeder <laughs> so system. They start, they start yeah. with a little bit of tox and a laser treatment, but ultimately yeah. you're feeding them through. Yes. Yeah. So you so, have to so be held to that account. Yeah. So the uh, standard advertising that I will have to adhere to in my clinic for non-surgical stuff will be the same as a surgical stuff because it's now seen as a feeder to uh, or, or a potential feeder to the uh, surgical thing because uh, that's typically how uh, businesses work. Now, an isolated clinic, which is not surgically related, uh, that will have different rules in terms of advertising. But having said that, um, my interpretation of the rules are um, advertising guidelines apply to medical practitioners and all corp body corporates. So if you're a business advertising a regulated health, regulated health service, you have to follow certain guidelines because there are um, um, financial penalties uh, provisions in the national law for breaches of advertising guidelines. So this is what we don't have clarity yet, but it'll be very clear in the next two to three weeks. Right. And what will you be able to say? So how will you be able to explain and advertise and entice a consumer to have a surgical or a non-surgical procedure? There's a lot of disclaimers and a lot of um, 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 obvious, um, uh, what is called as open disclosures about who you are, what you do, uh, what is the registration status, what is your upper registration number has to be disclosed in every post. You have to say that uh, surgery is uh, is um, has uh, potential risks. A second opinion with a suitably qualified practitioner is recommended. Um, the results vary from person to person. Your results may not be the same as this and that kind of uh, stuff. And you also have to have uh, a place on your website where you can access the um, risk and the benefits of the patient before they make a decision uh, to see. You can't just say these are good things that can happen to you, but at the same time, patients should be able to make a decision based on the information given to you to have a balanced view. And you can't say things other than the factual 
accurate scientific data. You can't extrapolate saying that if you have a, if I can use the word tummy tuck because it's a very common thing, you can't say have the surgical procedure to improve your self-confidence. Those things are gone. Interesting. You have to you have to say that yes, if you have a um, uh, liposuction, you can expect these one, two, and three. But then uh, sometimes if you look at websites, they'll say reclaim your freedom, regain your freedom. Absolutely, um, uh, absolutely. Go, go, go for exactly. a lifestyle. They're selling yeah. the dream. Yeah. You know, so in the cosmetic industry, we have hope in a jar. In the surgical and non-surgical, we have yeah. a whole lot of other promises. Yeah. So I, th I think that's 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 going to be uh, that's going to go out of the door. And um, so, uh, as I said, it's to be very factual and accurate, and not um, upsell and oversell stuff. And obviously, you cannot use people who have. Uh, who are quote-unquote influencers and uh, your relationships with influencers and anything you post on, on their website or your website, if they post for you, has to be made very explicit and transparent. Gotcha. So to I, I have been wanting to ask you this question. And in fact, last time we I was going to have you on the podcast, we had to wait because this matter was in the courts and very high profile. But there was an enormous amount of damage done from the cowboy um, surgeons. Let's give them yep. a broad brush stroke. But what it did do after the investigations of, I think it was Sydney Morning Herald and Channel 9, when it brought a lot of this to light, is that the Australian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons were able to once again have a very clear voice and conversation around the differences between a cosmetic surgeon um, title and a plastic surgeon title. And I'd like for you to educate us once again, because even now in the consumer's mind, there is difficulty in making that dis a distinction. Thank you. Look, I think um, um, before I start, the current rules that are going to come into uh, force very soon, not the 1st of July, but uh, fairly soon, it's in the pipeline, is you cannot call yourself a surgeon unless you're a registered surgeon, a registered eye specialist who performs surgery, or a registered gynecologist who performs gynecological surgery. So if you use surgeon in any context, you have to fall into these three categories. Otherwise, you cannot use the term surgeon. So if you were to uh, use the term cosmetic surgeon after having graduated from medical school and completed your internship and say, well, I can call myself a cosmetic surgeon. There was nothing wrong uh, in the law uh, in the past uh, that prevented you from doing that. But now the new law has been changed so that you cannot do that. And that will be seen as a breach of the national law. So uh, that's that's the first thing. The second thing is... To can I be... just stop you there? What is so... the difference between a surgeon who is a cosmetic surgeon and someone who is a plastic surgeon? What are we talking about? Okay, so so in terms of uh, to call yourself a plastic surgeon, you have to be trained through an accredited surgical pathway. 
you have to be registered by APRA as a specialist in the recognized discipline of plastic surgery, and only then you can call yourself a plastic surgeon. So this involves significant amount of postgraduate training uh, in surgery, in patient management, patient skills, communication, and it includes the entire spectrum of plastic surgery, which aesthetic surgery is essentially a part of. So you do you know, uh, reconstructive facial surgery, you do uh, facial traumatic surgery, breast cancer surgery, breast cancer so everyone surgery. who goes, who has this type title has yeah. already been trained in the full gamut of plastic yeah. surgery is that what you're saying that, that is correct and so all as a basis that, as a very basic you yeah. have done all the surgeries yeah you've done all the surgeries you've passed all the exams you've gone through a suspense four times a year and you skip have a three-month assessment then you move on this is a structured five-year program with is hard to get in and harder to get out as we say and once you finish that, you are seen as qualified to the highest Australian standard in plastic surgery. And by that, you're eligible to be registered as a specialist plastic surgeon. And along with that comes privileges, such as being appointed to a Department of Health public hospital. You can be appointed given practicing privileges in a private sector hospital. You are uh, recognized by Medicare Australia as a specialist in plastic surgery, which obviously includes you know, hand surgery and uh, craniofacial and cosmetic surgery and all those disciplines. So um, that's kind of what the difference is. And uh, if you, and cosmetic surgery has always been used by practitioners who have not gone through this entire process. They've gone through different stages of training. Different, some but people they have, have been done. trained though, right? They're not like pretending to be surgeons. No, no. It's, it's back to the definition of what is training, right? So in Australia, all the surgical training that is accredited goes to the College of Surgeons, right? And the Co College of Surgeons cosmetic surgery training program is done through the plastic surgery training program. So if you look at the plastic surgical training syllabus, cosmetic surgery plays a massive part of that syllabus so that's kind of what the official training program of cosmetic surgery in australia is given administered through the royal college of surgeons royal australian college of surgeons which is mandated by the australian medical council right so if you go and set up a parallel cosmetic surgery training program that is seen as a non-accredited training program which is not the same thing it's the same thing as tomorrow if i set up a neurosurgical training program and mint neurosurgeons after two years of training that will not meet the Australian standards. But but it's been allowed to go on without any regulation until a lone journalist really took yeah. up the cause. And that's terrifying. It's terrifying. The video images that we saw of the rogue surgeons performing surgery, making fun of their patients, taking all sorts of health risks that could have that did impact their health and well-being and their safety. And it was going on until a journalist yep. called it. Absolutely. So I think I think you're right. It's it's the um the evolvement, uh, sorry, the the um, evolving of how this whole uh, space kind of quote unquote crept up. It was started by little small things. The next thing you know is you scaled up a little bit and you did something else and something else. And you just mentioned in your podcast, uh, in this conversation earlier, that you had a, um, a tummy tuck 
and we saw a patient who had a tummy tuck. I didn't. Uh, I had abdominoplasty. Abdominoplasty. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. And um, so we had uh, we saw in the papers that the patient was sent home the same night after having had a uh, abdominoplasty, and you can see where the standards of care were not uh, adhered to, mainly because that particular practitioner did not have admitting rights in a hospital overnight admitting rights in hospitals so all of a sudden so they shortcut it because they didn't have admit admitting yeah. rights and that oh my have, goodness oh and that that wouldn't have happened if the practitioner was a qualified surgeon because when you go to a private hospital and say i want to operate as a surgeon in surgery they'll say but you're not registered i'm sorry we don't we can't your scope of practice cannot include something that you're not registered in trained in and so I know all, that a lot of treatments became off the menu um, following the initial changes that were made. So uh, I know that previously cosmetic surgeons were allowed to perform certain uh, procedures and then yeah. they were absolutely not. There's few things that changed that the um, rules and regulations that governed licensed facilities changed. And then there was the insurance premiums that impacted right. the, 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 the regulatory risk. So every time there's a new regulatory change introduced, your risk goes up based on how the insurance company sees that. So all of a sudden, if the overall uh, industry is seen as highly risky, then all of our premiums go up as well. Because there's now seen that as a um, impact on how you do business and your uh, regulatory risk goes up. So naturally, the premiums go up. So there's a whole heap of factors that we uh, see well beyond our actual clinical practice that will impact how we do business and practice a business. Well, this was just the tip of the iceberg conversation. I am so delighted to have hosted you on the show, Dr. Naveen. I love speaking to you. I learned so much from you and I cannot wait to see you speak at the Non-Surgical Symposium and to see your advisory panel and to learn from all of you so I can bring it back to my audience. And I'm deeply appreciative of the honor of being invited as the only consumer uh, editor that is attending. So it really is a pleasure and an honor for Ageless to be there in that capacity. I really want to thank you. Thank you. And uh, like, likewise, your um, listeners, if you're consumers, you can be assured that if you have your practitioner attend the non-surgical symposium, uh, you can be assured of a higher standard of care, uh, just because we uh, this year we're going to showcase a couple of systems in place for care of skin, for facial aesthetics, for risk management, for also basically running your business so that your practitioner can be upskilled to the level that is of a very, very, very high standard. And we are proud to say that this year will not only give the attendee a competitive advantage, but also a very clear roadmap to navigate through the new regulations and make sure that you know, you're comfortable, you're confident, and you can proceed with your uh, things that you love doing and doing best that is caring for your patients and providing what is nothing short of the best care in the world. Well, that is good news all around. And I, again, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Loved speaking to you. I'm sure that this is going to be a hugely popular episode. So um, thank you for being on the thank show. Thank you. Thank you, Ba. See you soon. Take care. Ageless by Rescue is brought to you by Rescue Me Academy, Reignite Your Relationship course. Love your relationship, but miss the early days? You're not alone. This course will teach you how to identify your issues, stop the fighting, find what you need to be happy, re-spark intimacy and keep the lines of communication open. 
Join us at rescuemeacademy.com.au to learn more about the program and to download your first free lesson. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please share and rate this episode. I'd love that. 